If there's a fire burning, you try to put it out first, and then you think about the fire code. So, you know, you don't try to do it all at once, necessarily. Hi, and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum in Washington, D.C. And in New York, I'm Laura Conaway. Today's Wednesday, January 14th. This is the second installment of our new Monday, Wednesday, Friday schedule. Today being Wednesday. Uh, On today's show, we're going to take a look at what happens when the rules change uh, in your particular line of business. And we're going to look at lightweight newspapers. We're going to start, though, David, with the Planet Money Indicator. The economic indicator today comes courtesy of the Department of Bad News. (laughs) They all come from there. This one, I think, comes from the Department of Commerce. Yeah, whatever. I mean, it was a a bad Christmas. These are the retail sales numbers. And in December, they were 2.5% down from November, twice as bad as some analysts had predicted. And if you compare to one year ago, retail sales numbers are down something like 10%. And we're talking about furniture and food and sporting goods, all the stuff that people think of as just stuff you buy. That stuff is all down. And one big sales category really hit the dirt. Yeah, things were bad for gas stations. They're down 16% on gasoline, right? And that's partly because the price of gas itself at the pump, as everybody who's driving a car these days knows, that price of gas has just plunged. There is some good news to that, which is that it means our trade deficit has decreased. And actually, the numbers came out yesterday. And for November, the trade deficit shrunk by 29%. I'm going to look at that again. Yeah, it's it's 20, there's 29% for December over November. And that is in part because we are importing less oil, but really we're just spending less on everything. And in the big picture, that is not good. I was talking to a guy at the International Monetary Fund this week who said we were seeing what he called a synchronized global downturn, which I guess is sort of like synchronized drowning. Uh, it was, He said it was the largest global downturn since World War II. It's really like the whole planet is just moving together. We have a little bit of a local indicator to do today, too. It's from listener Robert Chappell. He delivers the Wisconsin State Journal, which is published out of Madison, Wisconsin. He delivers it. His neighborhoods are in Mount Horeb. He drives around and throws them out of his car window in the pre-dawn <laughs> hours. Robert's number is 50. 50 what? 50 papers to a bundle. Robert, you used to get his papers from the printing press in the middle of the night in stacks of 40. But ad sales are slowing, and that means the papers are skinny, and that means the guys at the press can put more together in one stack. So he says he's getting 50 now, and other things about the paper have changed too. It's less weighty than it once was. I mean, it literally doesn't weigh as much. Literally, it doesn't weigh as much. It's literally harder for me to get it to your porch because when you're throwing something that feels like a pamphlet, it sort of wisps in the air. It doesn't fly and thud like it's supposed to. So hold on. You go to wing this thing, and in the old days when when the economy is good, uh-huh. it sounds like it's a fairly satisfying object to throw. It is. You get it. You get it rolled up. You put a rubber band around it or a bag around it if it's raining, and you wing it to the air, and it does its little pirouettes through the air and whoop on the porch. Now it sort of goes and settles on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> it's real world. I mean, I you know I can't yeah. deny tangible. 
that's that's pretty funny, but it it's also kind of it's pretty sad. Yeah, you have to smile with old Robert Chapel, but it's still you know it is tough to be in an industry like ours, like media or auto manufacturing, where you feel like the bottom is just dropping out. Yeah, it just feels like the layoffs and the mergers and the splitting up of banks, all that's just happening faster and faster. So economists have a word for this, and it's called punctuated change, sort of like when the dinosaurs <laughs> stopped. <laughs> um, uh, it's a big exclamation point, really. It's just, yeah, wham. And to me, it feels like what happens when you're paddling on a whitewater river. I used to spend an inordinate amount of time doing this. And when you approach a waterfall, there's a moment where the river kind of slows down and backs up, and it's, all, it's almost hard to get through. And then, wham, you're over the edge. And that's what it feels like all of a sudden with newspapers. I mean, people have – this guy, Michael Hirshhorn, wrote an article in the Atlantic Monthly saying, what if the New York Times stopped existing by May, which it – it probably almost certainly won't, but we're in an era now when we can talk about the end of giant staples of the, of the economy like the New York Times or like the big three automakers. I talked to one economist about this, Anita McGann. She's part of the Harvard Business School Institute for Strategy and Competitiveness. And she says, yeah, it's a lot like going over a waterfall. Let's imagine an, an industry such as autos, which is not nearly as far along as media and entertainment and punctuated change. In autos, what's happening right now is we're riding the kayak and we're just seeing the waterfall ahead of us. Now, uh, you know, the, 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 the massive implications of the, wa- the waterfall here that we see ahead of us is more li- in line with Niagara Falls here than it is with a 7- or 10-foot, uh, you know, uh, a, a drop in the river here. This, the, the, the consequences of this, of going over this waterfall, are so great. They have implications for dealer networks, for the unions, for the pensioners, for the health care benefits of people who are employed in the industry, for the state of the states of Michigan and Ohio and my own province of Ontario. The, the implications are so great that everything kind of slows down in anticipation of the of the consequences. We may not be able to fight back upriver anymore, uh, but what's happening is we're just trying to tread water as long as we can, th- trying to think about, well, what are our options here? How do we try to, you know, navigate through this, this major punctuated change that's about to happen? Is there an aspect of competitive advantage here where one company begins to make this change and because they've made a big change in the way they do business, they they gain a competitive advantage over the others in the same field, and then that makes the others change yeah. really quickly? Is that why it happens so fast? So let me make a distinction here between competitive advantage, which we typically think of as, you know, being um, acquired by a single firm. A single firm emerges as a big leader. And what happens to an industry as a whole, which is a, an industry, of course, comprised of a group of companies and also their employees and their customers. The best-case scenario in a situation of punctuated change is that we see a couple of great companies or great entrepreneurs, sometimes they're not in companies, sometimes they're in universities or they're just in private life, you know, working as individuals. They innovate. They come up with something great. They come up with something that's so compelling and so exciting that they offer a solution uh, for how to get over the falls effectively and actually recover some of the the, the old kayaks and, 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 and be effective. And once someone comes up with a new 
what we call a new business model or new industry architecture, there's this sort of period of transition where there's a lot of uncertainty and not much is happening, and there's excitement or enthusiasm around a couple of new business models, and then we see somebody emerge with a breakthrough, hopefully, and and uh, a new industry takes off. Is there any way to know if an industry you're in, like, let's take newspapering in particular. I think newspapering is about as hard-hit a media industry as there is. Is there any way to know while the change is happening, if what you're looking at is change or death? I think there are, there are some activities in newspapering that are, going to, that are going to die. The question here is, what is the heart and soul and brain of newspapering? And is there a way that it can survive in new media? So let me just see if I can uh, express this as uh, clearly. If we think of news, the old newspapering model not as about putting something down on a piece of paper, but rather as writing great articles and great editorial content and really interpreting what's happening in the world and providing an accurate, clear, uh, uh, journalistic kind of uh, uh, service to the public as a whole, if that's what newspapering was in its heart and soul and its mind, that, there may be demand for that online. And we may see great organizations, such as you mentioned the New York Times, actually flourishing in the new environment if they can find a way to get paid fairly for providing those services through online content. And if they can't, then organizations like that will be in serious trouble. I think, I think that's a fair observation. Is it possible that for human beings involved in these great changes that the changes are happening too fast? Uh, I think it is possible. I think it's not only possible, it's actually clearly happening that, that for many of us, these changes are happening very fast, too fast. Is it better in some way for individuals if it's just like a hammer on a nail, bam, the end of it? I don't know, uh, Laura. I mean, which is better? Which would you rather have, the Band-Aid pulled off hard or, or slowly? I think it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's for some of us, you know, absorbing the shock of a job loss it sparks us into a kind of a positive step forward in which we take on new challenges and restructure our lives. But for many of us, especially those of us who have devoted our lives and our careers, our futures, you know, bet our pensions, our, our retirement in companies that are going, uh, you know, going down as a result of this kind of punctuated change, it's very difficult to make these transitions. And I don't want to be... Uh, you know, I, I don't want to. I want to be thoughtful uh, and 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 sensitive about the kinds of transitions that people are facing as a result of this kind of change. Because people who are out there dealing with this don't experience it the same way economists do when they talk about it in the abstract. I remember my grandfather laid off as a New York City uh, newspaper worker when he was in his 30s, recovering well and getting a great new job and building a new career. That's very different from someone who's, you know, nearing, six, nearing retirement, maybe 60 years old, laid off from a job where the accumulated skills that that person has developed, you know, uh, uh, are, are no longer really viable in the old industry environment. You know, if you're, if, if you're um, you know, we're operating a printing press in the newspaper industry, you're very, in a very different situation than if you've been writing editorial content for which there may be demand online. Can legacy corporations make huge changes, or has it got to be somebody new? I mean, Adam Davidson on our Planet Money team was saying 
If you look at Ford, Ford didn't start out as a maker of buggies for horses to pull. It started out as an auto company. Boy, this is um, this is the the the, the big question that uh, that haunts uh, the American economy, in my view. Uh, there are great companies that have been threatened with this kind of punctuated or architectural change in their industries and have not made it. Unfortunately, Laura, the examples here of companies that have not made it, big companies have not made it, is a lot longer. That list is a lot longer than the companies that have made the transitions. What are some of the great companies that have, you know, made it through? I would say IBM, 15 years ago, looking at, uh, you know, the threat from distributed computing. This is an old mainframe company. Uh, has made the transition. Charles Schwab, a traditional broker, now leads in e-brokerage. E but uh, the list is a lot longer of companies that have not made it. Look at Kodak. We see General Motors right now struggling. It's, it's, it's much easier to find companies that have not made the transition than those that, that, that have. David, Anita McGann also talks about this concept of, it's tough to say, disintermediation. That's a terrible term. It's a terrible term. Does it mean something interesting? <laughs> it does. It means that when an industry is in trouble, people try to salvage the part that works, and they literally pick it up and move it into a new spot or a new form. This is like with newspapers where they're saying, you know, maybe we can get rid of the paper part and not print out uh, – Print out the newspaper every single day. Yeah, exactly. And then Robert Chapel doesn't get to throw it on your doorstep because it's appearing on the web. It's been moved there. And when you do that kind of thing, some workers make the trip okay, and everybody else gets shoved out even faster. I have to say, I don't really see how, you know, the, the, it's just some small number of journalists who would survive, though, right? Yeah, I think if if... By every calculation I've seen, if you just picked up the media industry, picked up all the newspapers and magazines and moved them online only, they, the, the old entities could support something like 20% of the workforce. Okay, thanks to economist Anita McGann for talking to us about change. We'll link to her book, How Industries Evolve, on our blog at npr.org money. We'd also like to thank everyone who voted for the Planet Money podcast in the 2008 Weblog Awards. You all made a valiant, valiant effort, not least of you, my mother. And we came in third after our friend Russ Roberts' uh, Austrian School Economist podcast and after the Harry podcast Mugglecast. Which we trailed by 59 votes. Next year, we're going to try harder. Yeah. We'll see you next on Friday. Check us out on the blog. Meanwhile, npr.org slash money, where Caitlin Kinney, who produces this podcast, is going to post a photo response to the 2008 Weblog Award results. I'm Laura Conaway. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thanks for listening. We didn't stop the fire.